I have a really uh, important question for you to consider as we start today. And that question is this, who can be saved? Now, this seems like a simple question, uh, but it's one that throughout church history has um, caused some difficulty. Uh, And based on, you know, when you lived, what church you belonged to, or what part of the world you were from, you might answer this question in very specific or different ways. Um, I can remember growing up in the Churches of Christ, uh, there were certain issues that you could disagree with on, you know, with different people, and then there were um, salvation issues. Do you remember? Like, you remember these things? So uh, some of the things that I remember as being salvation issues, uh, probably the primary one was, do you go to the Churches of Christ? Um, If you didn't go to the Churches of Christ, you were out of luck. Um, uh, We all in the Churches of Christ knew where you were going, uh, and it was really hot there. Um, But sometimes just which Church of Christ you went to uh, wasn't enough. Uh, For example, when I uh, was in Antioch previous to here, uh, I would get a newsletter, I think it was roughly every month from someone in Arizona who pointed out who all the real churches of Christ were and uh, was not afraid to name names about all the fake churches of Christ. And I have bad news for you. We are probably a fake church of Christ. Um, So that was one of the issues, of course, growing up. Another issue was baptism. Um, We believe that baptism is an important part of the process of salvation, but I can't tell you how many times I had or overheard discussions about when is someone saved. And the classic example that always came up uh, was, what happens if someone dies on the way to church to be baptized? (laughs) Do you remember this? Do you remember this? Yeah. Good times, folks. Um, So if they die on the way to church to be baptized, are they saved? And um, there were lots of discussions going around that. Um, And and I even remember, uh, this was kind of an old thing. Uh, This happened just once uh, in in my professional career. Like someone would would come to church and they would present me with a letter uh, as the the minister. And it would say um, what church they came from. And it would tell me when they were baptized and who baptized them. Because that was important also, apparently, uh, at different times. Um, Can I have bad news for you? We used to think that people who used instruments in worship were going to hell. (laughs) It's true. Um, Acapella worship is an important part of our Church of Christ heritage. And there are still some who believe that if you use an instrument in worship, it will put your salvation in question. Uh, I could go on because there are lots and lots of things that we could bring up within this discussion, but I'm not going to. My point is that the question of who will be saved is not always one that has been easy to answer. And can I just make one real quick observation about this? I think that we, being humans, people, have at times made salvation much more difficult than it actually is. Uh, And in particular, we have struggled 
to give an affirmative answer to is somebody saved if, if their uh, experience or their beliefs somehow differ from ours. Uh, what we heard or what we know or what we understand or what we think something says. Now, in the early church, this question of who will be saved was a really difficult one to answer. And it was difficult because there was one set of people who belonged to God, the Jews. They were God's chosen people. God had made a promise to Abraham that his descendants would forever be the people of God. And every act of God since that promise, including Jesus and the gift of the Holy Spirit, it demonstrates God's commitment to that promise. But there was an issue. What about everyone else? What about the Gentiles? What about everyone who is not Jewish? Can they be saved? Now think about the nature of that question. The the nature of that question is one that is startling if we sort of break it down in terms of what we're actually asking. Is it possible for this group of people to know God and know salvation, or is it not? Now, by the time that Luke has written the book of Acts, the question has already been answered. Gentiles can be saved. Everyone can come to a knowledge of God through Jesus Christ. But Luke needed to explain how this happened. Because the Jews are still the people of God, and they needed to understand how God made this happen. Because you see, while we may try to answer the question with our own minds and our own wisdom about who can be saved, God is the one who is writing the story. And he is the one who is charting this course. So we, we lead into Acts chapter 10 today with a story of three conversions. Uh, the Samaritans, uh, the Ethiopian, and Saul. And each of these conversions, as we talked about last week, were uh, increasingly dramatic, and each involved people that fell outside the realm of who you would think could be converted, who you would think could come to a knowledge of God. Because today's story is a long one, we're going to read pretty much the entire chapter of 10. I didn't want to leave anything out. Um, but we're going to divide it up into seven, seven different scenes. Um, but all of it is, is important to the story. So if you have your Bibles, open up to Acts chapter 10. And we're going to start with verses 1 through 8. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? He asked. The angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. 
He is staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. Okay. Everything about who this man is is wrong. I don't know if you appreciate this. Cornelius was a Gentile, meaning he was not Jewish, therefore he was not one of God's chosen people. Not only was he a Gentile, he was a Roman. And not only was he Roman, but he was an officer in the army, which means that he is a part of the oppression system that is keeping God's people down. This dude is wrong in every way, shape, or form. And there is no possible way that this guy should be able to experience God or be a part of the people of God. That's just a fact, Jack. Now, the thing about him is that he is not your stereotypical Roman soldier. In fact, Luke goes way out of his way multiple times in this story to let us know that Cornelius is a really good man. Even though he is all of these other things, he is a really good man. He, he fears God. But it's more than that, you see. He fears God and he lives out his life in a way that upholds the values of who God is. He takes care of the poor. He gives He is a good man and lives this life without even really knowing Jesus. And if this is true about him, dear reader, then why shouldn't he be able to know Jesus? So who decides that he should? This is one of the best parts of the story. God does. God decides that Cornelius should really know Jesus. But he doesn't approach someone and send someone to meet Cornelius. Instead, he approaches Cornelius himself, and he has this vision of this angel. Now, I don't know what you picture in your mind when you picture an angel. You probably are picturing something really bright, you know, the wings and all that. Uh, read what angels look like in Revelation with all the eyes and like all the wings and all the, yeah, so it's, it's no wonder that he's afraid when he sees this vision. But this encounter is something that happens to him. God does this to him. It's not something that Cornelius instigates himself. He doesn't really know what to do, or how to engage God further. Instead, God is the one who is pushing this story forward. And he spoke to Cornelius, and Cornelius listened to him and followed his direction. God spoke, Cornelius listened, and he obeyed. So he's already done more in this short part of the story than most people do. Right? Pick it up in verse 9. About noon the following day, As they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. 
He became hungry and wanted something to eat, and while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened up and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. Okay, can we just acknowledge for a moment that this is a weird story? Yeah, it's, it's, a, little, it's a little cuckoo. So Cornelius has a strange vision, and now it's Peter's turn to be genuinely confused by what is happening. This sheet comes down from heaven, and it contains all of these animals. And what's important for us to know is that there were animals that were considered clean by the Jewish people, and there were animals that were considered unclean. And the clean animals you could eat, the unclean animals you could not eat. I mean, that's just basic people of God 101 right there. The voice told him to eat because the voice says, I make things clean, not you. And Peter, in a classic biblical moment, argues with the sheet in the sky. Um, and and he, he's showing how dedicated he is to serving God by arguing with this heavenly sheet full of meat. So we need to appreciate for a moment how big of a deal this was to Peter. This is hard for us to relate to a little bit. Israel had been swallowed up by the Roman Empire, and they had not been their own people for a long time. And as time went on, some of the things that made them distinct and that made them the people of God were slowly going away as Rome took over and they lived under this world power. There was pressure to become more Roman, to drop the particularities of what it meant to be Jewish and to be good citizens. So, you know, if you eat a little pork here or you give a pinch of incense to Caesar there, like, is it such a big deal? Like, no one's going to know. But, you know, let's use an old church term. It's a slippery slope, my friends. And before you know it, you have lost your identity. So these laws, they stood in the way of the destruction of the Jews being Jews. They they clung to these things because it was part of what made them who they are, just like other things Uh, like circumcision that you see Paul argue about over and over again with churches. These rules, these things were fundamental to the Jewish sense of identity, and so Peter was not going to break these rules for anyone. Not for a voice from heaven, not for anything. But this encounter, like the encounter with Cornelius, was something that, that happened to Peter. He was just there on the roof to pray, and God started this conversation with him. And it ends, and Peter is less confused. 
what is he supposed to do with this information? What is he supposed to do with this idea that all of these things, what he can now eat? Is he even hungry anymore? Like, I don't know. What is, what is he supposed to do with this? And is God saying that something that is fundamental to his understanding of what it means to be a child of God is no longer important? What is he left to think? Well, he doesn't have a lot of time to think because we know that these people are already on their way. So let's, let's pick it up in verse 17. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the, man, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. Now, can you imagine this for a moment? It's a soldier, a Roman soldier, and two other servants knocking on your door, right? This, <laughs> they called out asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you, so get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Peter went down and said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? The men replied, we have come from Cornelius the centurion. He is a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to ask you to come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. Then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. Okay, so if you're Peter at this point in the story, you have to feel like you're on some sort of ride that you have no control over. It, it's like, I don't know if you've ever taken, you know, a taxi or an Uber or a Lyft, but you're in the back seat and someone is trying to get you to where you're going and they're driving and you're out of control and you have to just trust that they're going to get you where you're going. So Luke reiterates the story of the angel's visit to Cornelius here. And he repeats it two more times in this entire account. For there must be no forgetting by the audience that someone else is driving this story. That, that God is the one who is making this happen. And Cornelius and Peter are just along for the ride of what God is doing. Peter does not know where he is going or why, but he has to trust that God is making this happen. And to God's credit, God is trying to help Peter get there. But he's not taking him on the most direct route, is he? The, the whole thing is, is a little weird, but he's trying to lead Peter to this place, which makes me sort of wonder. Sometimes we say that we would love for God to teach us things in simple ways, right? But I think something we're seeing in the story that sometimes there are things we need to learn that can only be learned in the difficult way. In, in the harder way. So 
Picking up in verse 23, the next day Peter started out with them and some of the believers from Joppa went along. So now there's this whole processional of people going back to Cornelius' house. The following day, they've traveled for a day. He arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. So now we're talking like what? 50 people? As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I am only a man myself. While talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, You are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent me? Sent for me. Cornelius answered, Three days ago, I was in my house praying at this hour. At three in the afternoon, suddenly a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He is a guest in the home of Simon the Tanner, who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and it was good of you to come. Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. Okay, so Peter gets there, there's all these people, and his introductory statement is, you know that it's not right for me to be here, don't you? You know that God doesn't want me to be here. However, you know that God wants me to be here. So why don't you tell me why I'm here? So Cornelius tells him, the story again. And the story goes back and forth between Peter and Cornelius, and they both have had visions, and they both give this speech. And this shows us that God is doing something in Cornelius. This is what Peter had to believe, okay? This, was, this is what Peter had to grasp onto, that God was doing something in this Gentile. But God is not just converting this Gentile. God is also converting Peter. So in verse 34, then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a cross, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Now, if you've been with us on the study of Acts I hope you notice that this is a very different sermon than every sermon we've seen so far. 
I mean, it still gives the main points about Jesus, but he starts out with this startling confession. I now know that God does not show favoritism. This was, had to be an upsetting, exciting, world-reversing statement from someone whose faith was based on a certain amount of partiality. He was a part of the people of God. And this identity was in his bones, and now he is saying, you know what? I think everybody can come to know God because God wants it to be this way. Throughout Acts, step by step, um, proof after proof, we, we, we gradually end up in this place from Jerusalem to Samaria to Joppa and, and, and now in Cornelius' home. Luke has brought us face to face with this Roman soldiers, so that we can, for the first time, see the full power of the gospel. We may know that the disciples are struggling with this, and and that this journey is going to be long and, and painful, but Peter, Peter, who was with Jesus, is finally seeing for the first time how big Jesus actually is. His vision was trying to teach him something. It wasn't about food that was clean or unclean. It was about God's ability to say who is in and who is out. And if God says that someone is in, then they're in. And and it doesn't matter where you have been before or what you think or what you think should happen or shouldn't happen or who can be saved. God is the one who decides. Which speaks to sometimes we're not always the best judges of where God is and what he's doing. You know? So Peter is struggling to find his answer. So what he doesn't do is he doesn't, which we've seen in all these other sermons, he doesn't go back and say, you know, quote Isaiah or... Uh, you know, talk about David or talk about all these things. Why? Because he can't actually go back to a scripture that justifies this moment. This moment is new. And he, he can't go and read those things in. And so the conclusion that he comes to is wonderful. The conclusion that he comes to is that Jesus is Lord of all. Jesus is Lord of all. He's not just my Lord. He's not just the Jewish people's Lord. He is Lord of all. Because after all, one cannot have a Lord who is Lord of only part of creation. He's bigger than that. He's bigger than this one people. So in short, Peter comes to the realization that Jesus makes possible what was not possible before that he makes clean what was not clean. So imagine being Peter and trying to wrap your mind around this 
monumental change. You believe that Jesus is Lord, but you are now starting to understand how Jesus being Lord really does kind of change the world. It doesn't just change your life. It doesn't just change things for Israel. It changes the world. It is this huge monumental leap that he did not come to just save the Jews. He came to save the world. So Peter's idea of who God was and what God does had to grow. His sense of mission had to grow. And in order for that to happen, in order for him to grasp what God was doing, he had to sacrifice things that were important to him. And he had to be willing to let God rewrite his own definition. This is really good news. But it is also difficult news. And a step that is hard to take. Uh, Willimon, in his commentary on Acts, he put it this way. He says, faith, when it comes down to it, is our often breathless attempt to keep up with the redemptive activity of God. To keep asking ourselves, what is God doing and where on earth is God going now? Because, you know, the chances are God is going somewhere we may not expect. Fortunately for Peter, God gave him all the assurance that he needed to know that he was on the right track. Verse 44, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles. They, can't help, they just can't help themselves. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, Surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. Any potential dilemma for Peter concerning... <laughs> Here's what's funny. <laughs> in spite of everything that's already happened, he gets to the finish line and what is he thinking? I'm still not sure this is okay. But God seals the deal by sending the Holy Spirit on them. And so Peter is left with no other conclusion but to say, well, I guess this is all right now. Because God has accepted you, so I will accept you. Now, this is not really the end of the struggle. Um, Peter has to go back to Jerusalem, and he has to tell everyone what's happened. So picking up in chapter 11, verses 1 through 3 and verse 18. The apostles and the believers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, you went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. So Peter's in trouble. He really is. He's in trouble. But he explains everything. Guys, this is what happened. And he tells him about his vision. He tells him about Cornelius' vision. He tells him about the Holy Spirit coming. And in verse 18, when they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, so then, even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. So we have this story, and the real hero of the story is not Peter. 
Peter is just a part of what's happening. The real hero in the part in this story is God, who finds a way in the middle of all of these things to open up the kingdom of God to everyone. So what do we learn from this story? What is it that we can take from, from this example? I just want to offer you a couple just simple things. Number one, God's vision for what he wants is often bigger than our vision of what we think he wants. We limit God in all sorts of ways. And, you know, we talked about some of those examples at the beginning of service about ways that we have tried to close off the kingdom. But what we see here in this story is that God's vision for the kingdom is a place with wide open doors. It's not closed off. Where anyone from any background, even Gentiles, can come and know the fullness of the love of God. And that is good news. In order for us to get where God wants us to go, we may have to sacrifice things that we think are really important. In fact, we might have to sacrifice some identity-giving things in order to be remade by God and to be a part of his remaking of the world. We might even have to be open to changing our understanding of who God is and how he works in the world. Which, it makes me reflect on do we sometimes try to over-explain God? To say, this is what he does and this is not what he does, and this is where he is, and this is where he isn't, and this is... And we, listen, don't misunderstand me. We can know God, and we can understand who he is, and we can see things that are consistent with him, but at the same time, God is bigger than what our understanding is. He is more than we may want him to be. Because this God that Peter's dealing with is scarily out of control. And Peter has to go along for the ride. But lastly, we see that if we will pay attention, that God will give us what we need to follow him to a new place. Peter went on the, up on the roof that day to do what? To pray. And in time that he was already giving to God, God spoke to him and led him in a strange and completely unexpected direction. It's scary sometimes to think about where does God want us to go and what does God want us to do and how do we do it and how do we get there. But that's when we're turning on our own brains and trying to do it our way. What do I need to do next? What can I do? How can I control what this is that God is doing? Yeah, yeah, God, we're going that way, we're going that way, but let me do these things to get us there. And in this story of Peter, we see someone who is the spokesman for 
Christianity at this point being pulled this way and this way and this way by a God who has plans and wants Peter to be a part of it. It's hard sometimes to know where God wants us to go, but we see in this story that if God wants us to go somewhere, he will give us what we need to get there. Amen? This story is perhaps the most important story in the book of Acts. Because in this story, Jesus is expanded to include the world. Not just one group of people, but that all people may come. And that is still our mission today, that all people may come. That it doesn't matter where you've been or what you've done or who you are, that God has a place for you, that the doors are wide open, and you can become a part of what God is doing in this world. For God is saving this world. He has sent his son here to die for us that we might have life with him. And that life is available to everyone. We believe that the love of God in Jesus changes everything. 